Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, May the 7th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, May the 9th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 107th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. This show is airing on May 9th, 2022, on the anniversary of the defeat of Nazi Germany by the Russian Army. We commemorate all that lost their lives during World War II, including our U.S. lost servicemen, including the 27 million Russians who consider this the anniversary of the the patriotic war. Enjoy. Welcome, alternative news listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Pedro Gatos with Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Today is Thursday, May the 5th, and we will be pre-recording a show that will be broadcast live on Monday, May the 9th, 2022. It's a great privilege to have with us Dan Kovlik. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Let me just start by briefly introducing Dan. Daniel Kovlik, he teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and is author of the recently released No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. He regularly publishes articles as well. Dan, again, thank you so much for making yourself available to bringing light into darkness. If I could, before bringing your expertise to the table, I wanted to frame our discussion a little bit today. On May 9th is actually the holiday that marked the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. It's referred to as the Great Patriotic War in Russia, a Soviet term for World War II. But in the Ukraine, since the 2014 U.S.-supported coup, subsequently tens of thousands of streets have since been renamed, along with nearly 1,000 cities and villages, and over 2,000 statues and monuments have also been removed. In the Ukraine, in a what could be called an anti-Soviet cultural project, and I do think it is important to indicate Because in the theater, one of the concerns that Russia has expressed that we have exhaustively documented as valid and authentic is the neo-Nazi presentation within the government of the Ukraine and in the neo-Nazi activities in the Donbass area. And Russia, of course, not to get into all that history, but it arguably was a decisive force that defeated Nazi Germany on the Eastern Front at a huge cost of some 27 million Russians, soldiers and civilians. So the significance 
of the May 9th date and anniversary of the defeat of Nazi Germany and its celebration of the Patriotic War victory, in light of the reemergence of neo-Nazism as a threat to the Donbass and Russian-speaking areas on the doorstep of the Russian border, cannot be overstated. According to a number of reports, a quarter, 1.5 million Jews, of all the victims of the Holocaust actually lived in the Ukraine. And Ukrainian ultra-nationalists, a subset of, of Ukrainians, collaborated with the Nazis in carrying out those horrendous deeds in World War II. With that being said, I wanted to frame our discussion because clearly the effect of our government and in the mainstream media narrative of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been to completely blanket media messaging to the U.S. public with a rather extremist anti-Russian U.S. generated news and propaganda barrage for the past 10 years or so, particularly since Russia stood up and opposed U.S. aggression in Syria in 2015 and supported its ally through a treaty, a defense treaty, Syria, following the 2011 protests and U.S. intervention there. And Russia did so, I believe, because it knew and it was aware of what occurred in the U.S. interventions in Iraq and in Libya, which led to more than a million deaths there, as well as which led to completely failed nation states. So Russia certainly did not want to see that happen in Syria as well. And I guess this anti-Russian perspective, if you will, this McCarthyism, this seemingly relentless campaign to indoctrinate Americans to hate Russia would be a better description. What occurs to me, Dan, is that James Clapper, the former DNI in 2017, he consistently provided information to corroborate the narrative that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections and pushed for an investigation into Trump's ties with Russia, which have since been disproved. But critics have really questioned Clapper's reliability by citing his record, not just on perjury during congressional testimony in March 2013, when he claimed that the NSA did not wittingly collect data on millions of Americans. And then Edward Snowden's release showed that, in fact, the NSA was illegally spying on millions of Americans as part of a mass surveillance program. What I'm trying to get to is that Clapper, in an interview with Chuck Todd of NBC on Back on May 28, 2017, this is the kind of McCarthyism sentiment that is exemplified. Clapper said, quote, if you put that in context with everything else we knew the Russians were doing to interfere with the election, which to this day still remains an unproven assertion that gained credibility solely on the repetition of the claim and the absence of incontrovertible evidence. And he continued, and just the historical practices of the Russians, who typically are almost genetically driven to co-opt, to penetrate, gain favor, whatever, which is a typical technique, uh, so we were concerned, end quote. This is a rather xenophobic presentation of Russia. And our country has a long history of promoting these xenophobic and racist fears based on false justifications that later are revealed as false but only after their damage has been done and well ingrained into the American psyche. And then lastly, arguably, Ukraine has become a proxy of the United States and NATO for an assault, not just within the ethnic regions of, of Ukraine, but also, and according to some of your reporting as well, on Russia itself. So the whole U.S. government 
and mainstream media framing of the conflict seems totally misleading if it fails to reveal those people, those powers, those influences behind the curtains, kind of pulling these levers of this kind of informational propaganda war, if you will, that the American public has been inundated with. And it seems like the reality that's closer to an understanding of the truth would be that this is a, a deceptive presentation of the conflict where that completely left out of the narrative are a number of important uh, issues leading up to the invasion of February 24th, 2022. So that kind of introduction, I was wondering if I could first have you make any introductory comments, but also I wanted to ask you, there was apparently information leaked by someone within the Ukraine military to the Russians and later confirmed by some official documents that I'm not aware of. So I don't want to pretend that I have those documents at my hand, but I was hoping you might know something about this, but that in mid-March of 2022, that some 100,000 Ukraine troops were scheduled to attack Donetsk and Lugansk in a kind of a blitzkrieg manner of sorts. And of course, that would have involved quite a carnage of people. And that apparently this was one of the concerns that led Russia to act in what it claims self-defense of sorts and a responsibility to protect. Can you elucidate that at all and or the circumstances from a Russian perspective as to why they invaded? We know what the American perspective is. We are getting bombarded by it every day. So I really wanted to focus on this other perspective that you have eloquently presented in other venues. And again, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is true. I mean, first of all, I guess, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think the first thing people have to understand is that this war did not begin in February of this year. It began eight years ago in 2014, shortly after an unconstitutional coup that brought to power President Poroshenko, who himself would later admit that he came to power through an unconstitutional coup that overthrew a democratic government. And this was a coup that the U.S. helped to initiate. When Poroshenko took power through the help of these Nazi groups who've been around since the 1920s, He and these groups made it clear that they wanted to cleanse the country of the ethnic Russians in in that country. The Russian speakers, laws were passed to outlaw Russia being taught in the schools, to guarantee that Ukraine was the only official language. And Poroshenko made the statement that the Russian-speaking people in the country living in the Donbass would be living in bunkers for the rest of their lives. And, you know, true to that, the Kiev government, again, with the aid of these Nazi groups that became part of the military after this coup, did start attacking the Donbass region. And a war raged for eight years between the government in Kiev and these, in particular, these two breakaway republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, which broke away because of the fears they had about this new right government after the coup. And uh, 14,000 people died in that war before the invasion of Russia in this year. 80% of the people who were killed lived in the Donbass region. Most of them were civilians. So Donbass, and in particular, these two breakaway republics suffered disproportionately in that battle. Now, A lot of things happened in 2021 that made Russia afraid that this was going to get even more out of hand because, one, Zelensky had vowed 
to take back the Crimea through force. The Crimea became part of Russia through a referendum in which the vast majority of the Crimeans, again, this was after the coup, said, well, well, you know, we want to go back to Russia because we're afraid what this new government's going to do. We have to remember that Crimea had not been part of Ukraine for very long. Khrushchev had gifted it to Ukraine in 1954, and the people in Crimea voted to go back to Russia. And uh, by all accounts, even Western mainstream accounts, the people in Crimea are living very happily under Russian rule. Well, President Zelensky, who succeeded Poroshenko, he vowed in, I think it was April of last year, that he would take that back by force. Well, that would mean, you know, that was really a declaration of war against Russia and the people living in Crimea. And also people, I don't know if it was Zelensky, but other officials were making noise that they were also going to engage in a major attack of Donbass. And as you said, the Russians had intelligence that, in fact, that invasion was coming. And and that seems to be supported by French intelligence. And there's this former Swiss NATO official who also confirms that that was probably true, that that was going to happen, that invasion. And can I interject just a question for you to comment on, too, while we're on the subject of Crimea that, that I think is important? You know, as you indicated, there was a referendum that overwhelmingly close to 90 percent or more of the people voted in and over 80 percent voted to secede from Ukraine. And that actually followed the the horrific Odessa massacres earlier on May the 2nd, 2014. But just to take a step back, and this is what I wanted to ask you to comment on, please, is that this referendum of March 16th, 2014, the Washington Post and other folks would explain and, and would concede that absolutely there was an overwhelming majority, as you've indicated, to succeed. But they also would pejoratively present the deal as if it was completely under Russian occupation at the time, following Russia's military occupation of the peninsula, which really ignores the partition treaty of 1997 that allowed Russia to have up to 15 to 20,000 troops there for the purposes of that port, et cetera. They were not in excess of that number. Is that correct? Is that your, can you, can you clarify? Uh, yeah, I believe that is correct. And you're right that that treaty allowed them there because the Russia was continuing to, to use that port there with Ukraine's permission. Right. Again, even after the Khrushchev gifted Crimea to the Ukraine. They still use that as a major port. And so, yes, they, there was an agreement to allow troops to be able to secure that. And you're right. They did not send troops in excess of what was agreed to. And again, there's really no evidence that they coerced people at all in this. And, and there was not a single drop vote. of blood shed, right? I mean, that was the other thing. No, it's very clear. And again, all, by all accounts, the opinion polls show that people are very happy to this day, having gone back to Russia. So, I mean, no, I don't think anyone can disagree that going back to Russia represents the will of the people there. You know, now, I mean, in all truthfulness, in all fairness, there's not many countries in the world and neither the UN has recognized this accession of Crimea back to Russia. But I think we have to look at the circumstances in which all that took place. Again, as you mentioned, after this Odessa massacre, which scores of ethnic Russians were murdered by being burnt alive in this trade union building in Odessa, again, by these right wing forces. And you had these ethnic Russians uh, living in Crimea who said, well, that's it, we're leaving. And it's quite understandable that they would want to do that. And Russia was happy to, to take them back. In any case, those are the facts. 
of the situation. And again, when Zelensky said he would take it back by force, I mean, the, you know, as we say on the streets, them's his fighting words. I mean, that, that made it very clear that he was willing to attack Russian troops there. And again, willing to shed a lot of blood. I mean, to bring Crimea back by force would mean going against the will of the people there, which would necessarily mean killing a lot of people. And again, going back to what was happening in the Donbass, the weekend before, just to corroborate the Russians' fears about what was happening in terms of Kiev's designs on the Donbass in 2021 going into 2022, the weekend before the Russian invasion, according to EU observers, these are EU observers on the ground, there were 2,000 ceasefire violations the weekend before the Russian invasion in the Donbass, mostly by the Kiev military. I mean, that means that they shelled the Donbass on about 2,000 separate occasions the weekend before the invasion. Yeah, Dan, was it the OSCE or the EU that reported that there was a 30-fold increase in those random shellings from the Ukrainian forces into the Donbass? Yeah, it's the EU's observations. Okay, right. Thank you. That's right. So again, and this is at a time, by the way, that Russia had troops on their border, as we all knew because we were being told that, when Putin was making it clear he didn't want Ukraine to be part of NATO, when he made it clear that Ukraine had to stop attacking the Donbass, and they engaged in this escalation. I mean, clearly they were trying to provoke this invasion, not because the Ukrainians wanted it, but I think because the U.S. wanted it for their own purposes in order to, again, draw Russia into a war a protracted war that would weaken them, just as we did in Afghanistan. One other question, because we have the legal scholar, Dan Kovlik, with us on bringing light into darkness. Can you also briefly just mention, in the context of what you're talking about, the Minsk agreement, and that there appeared to be a real bona fide, genuine interest by the Russians to not invade Ukraine for quite some time. They actually refused initially to recognize the Lugansk and the Donetsk areas as as protectorates or whatever, and threw their weight behind the Minsk agreement. Can you explain that and the violation connected to that? Well, the Minsk, there were two Minsk agreements, which were unanimously approved by the UN Security Council. So that means the U.S. also approved it, which required a number of things. I mean, it, it required that all military weapons from Ukraine be taken out of the Donbass, that Ukraine stop attacking the Donbass. And yes, that a certain level of autonomy be given to Donetsk and Lugansk by the government in Kiev within the context of them remaining within Ukraine, within the borders of Ukraine, but maybe as separate or semi-autonomous federal republics. And even under that agreement, elections in those two republics were contemplated so that they could have some level of self-government. And Ukraine never abided by those agreements, never. And the U.S. never required them to. In fact, it's pretty clear the U.S. privately urged them to keep violating them because, again, I think they wanted to draw Russia into this war. And again, one of the things that Russia has said over and over is they want Ukraine to abide by the Minsk agreements, which is international law. It was approved by the Security Council. And again, Ukraine never did that. And so all this combined, and by the way, also very shortly before 
the Russian invasion, Zelensky said after meeting in Munich with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, that he may want to seek nuclear weapons again after they had given Ukraine had given them up in the 1990s pursuant to an international agreement. All these things combined made Russia feel like if they didn't act when they acted, that a lot of people would die in the Donbass due to a, a full-scale invasion, that Ukraine, which was already being used as a proxy against Russia, would become an even greater and more deadly proxy against Russia, and that it had to intervene to prevent all that. And that's where we are today. You know, even the Pope said a couple days ago, for the first time, he said that he thinks that what NATO had done by continuing to expand up to Russia's borders and by refusing to listen to Putin's concerns about Ukraine possibly becoming part of NATO, that that probably did lead to this war and that NATO bears some responsibility Mm -hmm. because of that. And that's all true. I mean, I think that that is all true. And I think the only way for this war to end is for the U.S. and NATO to address those real security concerns of Russia. Let me ask you this, too, because these security concerns of Russia that you allude to, I can remember when the coup occurred, which clearly was a U.S. engineered coup. We don't need to go into that. We've discussed that in depth on other shows. However, at that time, or shortly following the coup, John Brennan, the CIA director at the time, came to the Ukraine allegedly to help the execution of of this conflict that you alluded to of these far-right-led forces in the Donbass area and such. First of all, he denied he was ever there, and then photos showed him being there, and he recanted that. But also at the same time, our vice president at the time, Joe Biden, had come to the Ukraine on several, more than one or two, four to five times, I believe, in the first year or two to the Ukraine. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is to reiterate what you have already alleged and suggested was the case, is that this is not a Ukraine autonomous type of presentation here. There is a huge influence and involvement by the U.S. interests. And in that light, I think is important to to discuss another concern that Russia has allegedly had, that there were people being trained since 2015 to potentially influence attacks into Russia as well. In other words, Russia, could they have possibly envisioned themselves becoming one of these venues of destabilization and and potential regime change? Such has occurred and been engineered by the West in Libya, Iraq, and attempted in Syria? Completely outside of the awareness of the American public. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there were some cross-border attacks that were launched from time to time from Ukrainian soil into Russia. And of course, they were concerned and they should have been. I mean, the truth is the U.S. has made it clear they want to weaken Russia and they even want to partition Russia. And the U.S., even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, supported terrorist groups in Chechnya, which caused a civil war. And so, you know, when the Russians say we're under an existential threat, it's only because they are under an existential threat. And U.S. officials who are honest about it admit that we want to put them under an existential threat. I think that, yeah, if you look at what the U.S. has done in places like Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, they've left these countries broken one after another. And yes, I think Russia thought they would be on the list to be one of those countries. When we hear about the right to self-defense, I guess the, in your eyes, at what point do, is that justified? Certainly, we've heard it 
The R2P, the responsibility to protect, it's been hijacked for aggressive purposes is certainly in Libya has been shown to be the case where it was just a lie, but it's not always a lie, right? And, and I guess, how do you, I mean, I think you've already started to describe this deal. And I think that's really, I remember from Dr. Martin Luther King, that was the most important lesson I, I will always carry with me is to try to honestly put yourself in the shoes of all parties and seeing what they're seeing and feeling what they're feeling and interpreting from the objective conditions that history has laid out to them and such. So in that regard, do you believe that there is an argument under the charter that Russia did not act as an aggressor as much as in self-defense? Yeah, well, I wrote an article arguing that Russia at least have an, has an arguable case that they were acting in self-defense on a number of ways. I mean, one, there's an argument that it was collective self-defense because they were defending Lugansk and Donetsk, who had declared themselves independent and who asked for Russian assistance. But also, we've talked about the fact that Russia feared that they were under imminent threat of an attack themselves. And we know the CIA was in Pakistan before the invasion, training ultra-right groups to kill Russians. I mean, that's by their own admission, the people being trained. So excuse me, Dan, but we need to take a quick pause for the cause. We are with the Honorable Attorney, legal expert, Dan Kovalik, and we will return to bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis on 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, after a brief pause for the cause. Don't touch that dial. 